want to welcome our live stream audience joining us. And sorry we're starting a little late, but uh, that's what happens when you have so much fellowship and sharing and you've got food and a good cup of coffee and uh, homemade desserts and people are just having a nice time. Uh, but we welcome you as well and hope you, you have a nice evening, that uh, you've had a good evening and you're ready to get into the Word of God. And to this evening, we're going to pick up where we left off, and that's at chapter 3. Normally, we do one chapter a night, but I wanted to just come back because we really, I really uh, focused in on one element last week, and I left a lot of chapter 3 undone, so I want to come back and look at it. The, uh, before we get started, uh, I shared Sunday the good news that, uh, that we are under contract for a property and a, uh, a new facility which is exciting, and uh, hope that you uh, can learn more about that this weekend. We'll have some pictures to show and maybe give you a little more of a, uh, if you haven't already seen some pictures or haven't, haven't gone out there, you'll be able to see it. We, uh, let's continue to pray for the finance team. Uh, they are really uh, putting in a, a lot of work, especially Steve Wade. Steve has agreed to be our point person for the 45 days of due diligence, things that we have to have accomplished in order for the contract to remain. And there's 45 days worth of, I mean, it's a list of things, everything from inspections to surveys to just tons of stuff. And keep him in prayer. He has, he prayed about it and he felt the Lord telling him to lead it. And so praise God for that. And if any of you are familiar with those types of, of things, and you have an interest in it, you might want to give Steve a call. Maybe he can assign you one of the, one of the uh, things on the list to, to help him with. That would be great. Um, but let's go ahead if we can, and we'll begin with prayer. Uh, Scott Walker and Deb are not with us this evening. Scott went down this morning to see his mother, Terry Gamble, uh, who they thought had a light stroke. And so he was at the hospital this morning with her. I had a chance to to talk with him uh, by phone, and uh, she's improving, doing better, and he wasn't sure if he could get back in time tonight. So let's just continue to lift uh, the walkers up, but his mother, Terry, uh, remember her. And why don't we begin with prayer? Father, this evening, I, I want to thank you for this opportunity to just come together as the family of God and to really experience what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And, and I pray that, Lord, we would understand that you are a God who understands and identifies and sympathizes with our sufferings, with our pain, with our sorrow. I think about a couple here this evening who are just really mourning the loss of their, their pet, their dog, like a child to them. And uh, we pray that you comfort them. And there are others here tonight whose spouses are, are away, and they're praying for their safety and for their comfort. So there's just all kinds of needs, physical needs, emotional. Um, we pray that you would just minister to people. And we thank you for your word that brings ministry to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Two things about a pastor. Uh, a shepherd of a flock, according to Jesus, 
is to do two things well. One is to, to protect the sheep, and the other is to feed the sheep. Both of those things, the lovingly protecting of the body and lovingly feeding the body, are best done, first and foremost done, by the teaching of the Word of God. That does allow you to be protected. The Word, knowing the Word, living by the promises of the Word. There's protection as you obey the Word of God. Would you agree? And then, of course, uh, uh, we all need the teaching of the Word to grow in, in the knowledge and grace of Jesus. Uh, I, was, I was on Facebook earlier, and my, one of my relatives posted, I don't see it now, but she posted uh, something I thought was interesting, and she talked about the difference between a, uh, a church person and uh, being a, a Christian. And she said a church person just attends church but a Christian is the church. And I, I, I pray that each of us would let that settle deep in our hearts, that we are called by God to be the church. And it's good to attend church. We're not putting that down, but make sure you are the church. And that means loving one another, caring for one another, coming early and having fellowship, and, and, and just, if need be, praying with each other. That's what it looks like. So praise God for that. All right, let's get started. We're gonna, I'm just going to back up if we can and say a few things about chapter 3 because it's, it's really a short chapter, but it's, the, it's a pivotal chapter. Uh, it's probably helpful to understand that chapter 3 is the chapter that reveals the conflict that dominates the entire book. What conflict is that? The threat to the Jews. This book is a, is a documented re recording of how the Jewish na nation faced annihilation, distinction, and extinction. They were singled out, and then they were, it, they, Haman wanted to execute them, all of the Jews. So this book is, is a recording of that. That's really the main focus of the book of Esther. So let's, let me just read, and I'm not going to go through it because we studied some of this from last week, but let's just read it so we have the narrative in place. Okay, after these things, King Hoeres promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, what role, what title did Hamath have? He was like a prime minister a personal prime minister to the king of Persia, okay? Just to kind of give you that background. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Uh, so the king put out the edict that you will bow down before this man. Now, if it were simply an act of civil respect and civic respect, then, okay, bowing is not a big deal. But actually, in the original language, it's not bow. It's fall prostrate, which is an act of worship. Homage meaning worship. 
And so the king is actually saying he's, he's a little bit more than just you giving him a civil respect. Uh, I want you to fall before this man as if he is more than just a man. Okay? And so that's where, that's where we see a problem that Mordecai has with bowing down. And the king's servants who were, verse 3, were at the gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had, he had told them that he was a Jew. When they would ask every day, why aren't you bowing down? I'm a Jew. We don't, we don't pay homage to anyone but God. That's all he would say back to them. I'm a Jew. Well, he didn't know this uh, at the time. Uh, he did know that this Haman was an Agagite, and that for a Jew was a flag that goes way up. But he didn't know that this guy uh, was an anti-Semite. He's anti-Semitic. And, and so uh, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. And that, remember, I, I told you last week that word fury, don't think of it just as he's upset. Um, it's the same word that is used in different places in the Bible to speak of an, an, an anguish, an anger that's almost uncontrollable. And so when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, he was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, I don't want to just go after him. I want to go after his people. Because his servant said, when we asked him why he wouldn't bow down or pay homage, he said because he was a Jew. Well, that was a flag to Haman. And so where a lot of this, and where we went last week, and we never really left that, that story, but we talked about Samuel, in 1 Samuel, how God told through the prophet, he told Saul to go and take out the Amalekites. And the king of the Amalekites was Agag. And a tribe of people of the Amalekites was called Agagite. And he's one of them, Haman. And so because Saul didn't take out all, all of the, the uh, Amalekites, he let some live. And, and God said, take out the children and the, the women. Take every, every Amalekite out. Kill them. And, and not just there. Kill all their livestock. God, God wanted them completely erased. And you say, why would God do that? Because the Amalekites are a type in the Old Testament of flesh. They represent the flesh. And in the New Testament, Jesus spoke of this, Paul spoke of this, the disciples spoke of it. That we are not to what? We're not to please the flesh. We are to please the Spirit. We have to crucify the flesh. Jesus said it this way. If you're not willing to pick up your cross, if you're not, not meaning to go to a literal cross and die, but if you're not willing to put your flesh to death, then you're not worthy to follow me. There's no room for flesh. 
And so the Old Testament Amalekites were the picture of that. And that's why God wanted them wiped out. Because God knew if you don't wipe them out, Haman, 600 years later, this guy will try to wipe out the Jews. And that's the story. That's, that's what's going on here. So he, he disdained to lay hands on, on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hawaris. So he's going to go throughout the entire... Listen, this is the empire of the world at that time. The Persian Empire was the empire. They owned everything in the known world at that time. I mean, they were just like huge, okay? So they're going to go into every village of every far-reaching part of the Persian Empire, and they're going to kill off the Jews. Listen now. In one single day. I'll tell you how that was played, how that came to be. Look, look at this. In the first month, seven, verse seven, in the first month, with which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hoeris, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So Haman is wanting to set a day, a specific day, for the extermination of the Jews in the Persian Empire. Okay? And this was the first month, and they began to cast month by month. So when did they start? They started in April. That's the first month in that calendar. Um, the last month, the 12th month, is what they settled on, and that would be March. So the following March, a year later, they were going to exterminate the Jews. Okay? I uh, hope you're getting the picture here. And, and uh, so now let's keep going here. Um, let's look if we can at, at uh, well, let me just say this. I want to back up and just say a few things about the flesh. Because again, God wanted Amalekites wiped out, a picture of the flesh. He wants us to put the flesh to death in us. Okay? So there's passages that speak to that. And uh, one of the passages that speaks to that is Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So God's not playing around with sin. He's not playing around with the flesh. He doesn't want you to treat it lightly like, Samuel, like, like Saul did. So Saul comes back, he let the king, the king Agag live. Instead of killing them off, he let him live. And he brought back the choices of the animals. And Samuel confronted him, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ear? Because you said that you took them all out and obeyed the voice of the Lord. You did not obey God. And who is this guy? And he was proud. He said, oh, this is the king. I brought him back. And the king is thinking, I'm going to get to live. He didn't take me out. He took everybody else out, but he let me live. And he probably let the family of the king live. They didn't come with him, though. And Samuel looked at him and said, uh, you, 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 you're telling me that you're, you brought the animals back to make sacrifice to God as if sacrifice before God is more important than obedience to God? He confronted him. And then Samuel took a sword and he chopped up Agog, or Agag in pieces. God said, take them out. That was God in the Old Testament giving us a picture 
in the New Testament of what it looks like to kill our flesh. Don't give the flesh any space in your life. It will try to destroy you. So that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin, the flesh, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, so sometimes we need that reminder that God doesn't have a plan to reform our flesh. You know, God reformed me as a person. He gave me a new spirit, a regenerated spirit, but he's not interested in regenerating my flesh. That's not going to happen until after I die that I get a new body, not made with hands but eternal in the heavens. That's not the same fleshly body that I have now. Paul said in Romans, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. This also lines or parallels all the passages about the total depravity of man. There is no, listen to this, there is no such thing as a good person. Because if they're clothed in flesh and blood, they're depraved in a sense. They, their, their spirit is not regenerated with God's spirit. Until Christ does a work, they're not good. And so, you know, I, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And in Samuel, God ordered the complete extermination of the flesh. Okay, so uh, let's, let's keep moving. Verse 3, Then the king's servant, servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, blah, 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 we, we kind of read that, but this guy was not going to give any homage, any worship to Haman. And Haman was angry. And, and then verse 7, in the seventh month, they cast lots. They decided, okay, the day that we're going to take out the Jews is going to be uh, the 13th of March. Was it the 13th? Is that what I read? The, the 12th, the 12th year. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry? Yeah, 12th month. I'm sorry. 12th month in the 12th year of the king. But I'm trying to see where it talked about what day in the month. They're... they're Maybe it was a, a commentary that I read, but they said the 13th, on the 13th of March, was when all the Jews in the land would be exterminated. Um, it's in, okay, it's in the text. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, Bob. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Hoeris, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Now we see why the king signed off on exterminating the Jews, okay? And so what you're going to see here is Haman's going to share a truth, but he's going to attach it to a lie, okay? And he attaches a lie to that truth so that the king will side with him in his desire to exterminate the Jews. So if there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That is a truth. God drove the, uh, the Jews out of the promised land or out, out of uh, uh, Jerusalem and Judah and also in the northern kingdom to other places, and so they're scattered. Uh, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. 
Okay, the first part of that is true. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Absolutely, the Jewish law was very unique because God is the one that gave it to them. It didn't come from man. And then the second part, and they do not keep the king's law. That is absolutely false. They've been living in the land of the Babylonians that was later overtaken by the Persians, and they've been obeying the laws of the Persians like they did the Babylonians. God's the one that sent them there. And so they have not disobeyed the laws. At least there were no laws at that time that the Babylonians or the Persians had put upon them that would force them to break the law. But now, <laughs> that's about to change. So he says this, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. So basically he's putting in the ear of the king, hey, these folks, there's a lot of them, they're all over the place, they don't believe the same way we believe, and they break your laws, king, they're not keeping your laws, and you're, they're living in your province provinces. And the king, uh, he's like, whoa. So here it is, look, verse 9, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. In other words, I will give what is more than, uh, that is more than half of your annual salary, king. I'll give it to the people that kill them. Okay? That they may put into the king's treasuries. So in other words, if I kill them and give the money to the people, the people are going to have to pay taxes, you'll end up getting that money. It's a big scheme. Ponzi scheme, right? So Haman's charge against the Jews was a half-truth, and that's very important to understand. Uh, now, uh, Mordecai's refusal to bow down before Haman was not based on the law of God. It was a personal preference. It was a personal integrity. There is not a law that would keep him from showing honor to a dignitary. But the king didn't say just that. He gave this guy status above that. And that's where Mordecai made the decision, I'm not going to go that far with it, because it possibly could break a law of God, and I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. Now, verse 10, So the king took his signet ring from the, his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agite, or Agagite, uh, the son of Hamadetha, and, and the enemy of the Jews. There it is. It comes right out in the text. This is the story of the possible extermination of the Jews, and the way it's recorded right here by Ezra is that uh, this guy wanted to, he was an enemy of the Jews. So he is part of the original Amalekite group. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with the, the, them as it seems good to you. So he was trying to bring the king in and give him money, and the king said, I don't need your money, but give it to the people, and you take your portion as well. So how? How does that happen? Here it is. So the king told him to keep, that what, keep what portion he wanted and then let the people have their portion. How did they know what their portion would be? Again, all over the land, far-reaching provinces, villages, where Jews were living. The edict goes out. By the way, Darius, the Persian king, prior, is the one who established an incredible postal service. They could deliver information to the people of the entire Persian Empire quickly. 
And so, so the word goes out, and here was the word. On the 13th day of March, is that right, Bob, the 13th day? 13th day. Okay. On the 13th day of March, you, the people, kill the Jews living in your area. This is a purge of God's people from the greatest empire on the face of the earth at that time. So the people would kill off the Jews living in their community, and then they would take possession of what was left from the Jews. And that's where they would get their wealth. And by the way, even while they were in, this is just fascinating to me, but I, I, uh, there were a couple commentaries in particular that really went deeper into the, the history of the Jews during their exile. And they both said that while they were in exile, they had to walk away from everything they had. Yet while they were in exile, they were able to save. They were able to build up their wealth. You say, how in the world? You're, you're in exile. You're not even in your land. You're captive in another land. How did you get wealthy again? Because they're God's people. And in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, God made it clear, if you'll keep my laws, if you'll obey my commands, I will bless you. So that prosperity message that gets pushed on people today, that is a lie. What those guys ought to be saying was that back in the Old Testament, specifically for the Jews, they were God's chosen, holy, dearly loved. And when they obeyed, God said, I'll bless you. And when you disobey, you're going to be cursed with a curse. But these folks living in, in Persia had wealth. That's why there was so much money that they could give to the people and even to the king that was supposed to be equal to more than half of the king's annual salary. That's what the Jews owned. Now, the king's annual salary would be something like back, uh, it's probably something like $25 million of today's money. And so that's a lot of money for those folks, probably $14, 15000000 million that the Jews possessed. But they're going to be wiped out, okay? So verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and there it is, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. I mean, the, the kingdom is so large that... They don't even all speak the same language or have the same uh, dialect of language. So it was written in the name of King Hoeres and sealed with the king's signet ring. The king actually gave Haman his signet ring to stamp it to make sure that people knew it was from the king. I mean, this guy's been elevated prime minister, personal prime minister to the king, and the king has just signed off on him taking out an entire nation of people, not realizing what he is doing. Now, I want to stop here for just a second, because if you study the book of Nehemiah, which I just did a deep dive, I took five days and went down to a little condo on the ocean in Hutchison Island that some friends owned. They said, come and stay. So I did. And for five days, I just saturated myself with the book of Nehemiah. I'm so excited to teach Nehemiah uh, on the 10th of uh, September. We'll start that series on the 10th of September. Um, 
But you'll find early in the study of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah, going back, feeling a burden, praying, going before the king of Persia and asking for permission to go back to his homeland and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king gave him favor and said, go, do it. And he goes off to do it, okay? Now, interestingly enough, while he and the people are working hard diligently every day to try and rebuild the walls, Sanballat and Tobiah, these are, let me tell you who these guys are. These are the heads of, of, of provinces in regions surrounding, just north of Jerusalem. And these are people that are not Jews. You say, well, then what are they doing right there in that, in the, in that land? Well, when the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, the Assyrians hauled them off. But the Assyrians also brought new people from other parts of the earth into the northern kingdom area. So that they were trying to completely destroy any history, any past of the Jews in the northern kingdom. And so they brought these people in. Well, some of the Jews, if you remember me telling you, they would take all the skilled people, all the dignitaries, all the important people, they took them in the captivity. They left behind the poor. And so there were poor people still living in that region who worshipped God, at least in the way that they knew how. Because if you remember, Samaria, and Samaria, by the way, Samaria, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And, and they did worship God to a degree. Uh, remember, Jesus even confronted the Samaritan woman and said, you guys think that we are to worship on this mountain. The Jews believe it's on that mountain. And the Jews are right. However, a day is soon to come when you will not worship God on even that mountain. You will worship Him in spirit and in truth. But the Samaritans didn't understand that. So now you've got new people coming in, being taught some of the practices of the Jews in worshiping God, some of the rituals of the Jews. But they're also mixing it, like in a big cocktail, they're mixing in their own pagan religions that they brought with them from whatever foreign land. So you have a syncretistic type of worship. It's a little bit of everything mixed in. Okay. So Sanballat and Tobiah were two men that came up in that. They knew a little bit about the Jewish worship, but they also worshiped many other gods. So they become absolutely irate at the thought that the Jews could rebuild their walls. They did not want the Jews to come back to Jerusalem. Okay, uh, They liked the fact that the walls were down. They could just walk in anytime they wanted and take what they wanted. And there were people living in Jerusalem but they had no protection. So as the walls were beginning to go up, guess what happens? They write a letter. Again, the postal service was pretty good at that time. They write a letter to the king of Persia, and they said, hey, we've got these Jews that have come back here, and uh, they've been, some of them have been released by you, and they've come back, and here's what they're doing. They're, they're rebuilding their Jerusalem because their plan is to stop giving you taxation and they're going to rise up at one point against you. Well, guess what the king's going to want to say? They can't do that. And so in the book of Ezra, I'm sorry, I said the walls. It was the temple. 
in the book of Ezra, it records that they actually, the king said, tell them to stop immediately trying to rebuild the temple. Okay? So it's just another picture, another narrative that's similar to this one. Okay, somebody got in the ear of the king and turned the king against the Jews. And this was a common thing. You don't, I mean, it's hard for us to understand because we're not Jewish. And you need to really be careful what you say about the Jews. I mean, if you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, those who bless you will be, and those who curse you will be, I don't talk against the Jewish people. I just don't. I do the opposite. I, I, I pray for them, that they'll return to God, that they'll receive the Messiah. But I, I'm, I try to be good to Jewish people instead of buying into all the stuff that's said about Jews. There's so, much, so many derogatory statements that are made about Jewish people. Okay? And, and we need to... I'm telling you, that's not good. It's not good. And for a Jew, they've had numerous times, including Hitler, numerous times, the only people on the earth to have so many times to look back upon where they were, where other groups tried to exterminate them. For one reason, they were God's people. The people who were trying to exterminate couldn't get to God. So let's take out what God possesses. Now, God had told the Jews, you need to be, you're my children, and my name needs to be lifted up on the earth. You are the ones that are supposed to make my name great on the earth. By following and obeying me, believe me, the people will know that you belong to me. But if you resist and you rebel, you're going to be devoured by the sword. And they chose to rebel. They have not responded to Jesus yet. I believe a day is coming when the Jews in mass will receive Jesus Christ as, as, as their Savior. We haven't seen it. We're not going to see it. It'll be, I, I believe, after the rapture. And, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It'll come through great persecution, but it'll happen. So I've taken enough time there, but I just wanted you to have a little bit of background about so this, this idea of exterminating uh, the Jews under Haman's leadership is a, just another attempt to thwart God's plans. And that's what Satan is always doing. And he also, just as he tried to do it to the Jews in the book of Esther, he wants to do it in you with your flesh. His desire is to lie to you, to kill you, and to destroy you. You say, well, if I'm dead, how can he destroy me? Eternally. His desire is for you to end up in hell. And that's why he goes after the people of the earth who've yet to hear the gospel. And those of us who have heard the gospel, he still wants to lie and take from us and destroy and make us miserable. Or not destroy, but kill us, make us miserable. You, the way he can do that in a believer is through the flesh. If you commit an act of sin, you come to temptation corner. And, and anytime you go to Temptation Corner, there's always other options. Okay, that's what, that's what Paul said. Paul said that every man's been tempted to sin. Nobody's got some new sin that they're tempted with that nobody else understands. We all get it, 
but God is faithful and He will make a way of escape out of your temptation. You don't have to give in to the temptation. If you looked at the number, if from God's view, the number of times that God gave you an opportunity to escape from that temptation. So we come to temptation corner, we can either go down this road, which is pleasing the flesh, or we can go down this road or that road that God has provided as a way of escape. And so what happens the second that you go down the wrong road, the road that leads to pleasing the flesh? Immediately you feel what? Conviction. There, there's a couple of things that you feel. First, you feel a guilty conscience. Your conscience doesn't let you sleep at night. Now you're staying up all night worried over what you did. That's God put that conscience in you. The soul sergeant, that's what your conscience is. It's the soul sergeant who stands at attention. And he, he thinks you're still at war, by the way. And so as soon as you sin, he calls, you're a sinner. He calls it out. Your, your conscience condemns you. You have to tell your, once you're saved, you've been redeemed from sin. You're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. So you have to tell your soul, your, your soul, your, your, uh, soul sergeant, you got to say, um, hey, listen, fella, first of all, thank you for making me realize when I do sin, I feel, I feel guilt. Thank you for that. But you need to understand, my Savior went to the cross, and He paid the ultimate price for me, and He has redeemed me from the power and the penalty of sin. So while you might, as a conscience, under God's uh, law, bring guilt to me and shame to me, you cannot condemn me any longer. Amen. Amen. But you do feel it. You feel the guilt. Okay? And you should. Why? Because God's trying to keep you from fulfilling the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And then, it's, of course, the second thing is the Holy Spirit now lives in you if you're saved, and the Holy Spirit's going to convict you <coughs> when you sin. So that's how much God loves you. He's put these things in place. Thank you. See right here, Erlene takes care of me. She, she watches me close like a hawk when I'm at the table over there. She lets me, she lets me have the sugar-free, but she, she, she gives me a look. She doesn't say anything, but she just gives me a look. And then she makes sure that you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Richard, in a, in a way that I don't know. So, and then water. She'll just, she just, just went, pointed at that water. Take a drink. And I'm very thankful for her. <laughs> Amen. That's what it looks like in the body. We care for each other, right? Really, that's what it's about. So, so God is really set. He's, he has set up inside of you the opportunities to resist the flesh. If you're a believer and the Spirit of God lives in you, you are not bound to sin. You don't have to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't fall short because in moments of weakness, whatever, right? And all of a sudden, you're, you have a wrong thought come in your mind about somebody. You're judging them. And then you catch yourself and you go, what am I doing? God set me free from that judgment. And I'm just glad God doesn't judge me the way I'm judging them. See, now, now you get back on the path. But that's the constant day-to-day -day fight against the flesh. And that's what God's saying here. The Amalekites are a picture of, 
of death, of sin for a Christian in the New Testament. Don't give your flesh any credit for anything. And you've got to be so careful because what does it say in 1 Corinthians? It says, you need to take heed, be careful, lest you think that you won't sin. Because the one that thinks that they've got it together, they're the one that's going to fall. There should never be a time in the life of a believer that we think, oh, that's one sin I'll never commit. Don't say that. Because then Satan is like, he, he comes right at you with that temptation. Isn't that how it works? That's how it works. Okay. So, verse 12, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and the edict was uh, given, and all of that. Verse 13, letters were sent out. Now, verse 14, a copy of the document was issued to be issued on a decree in every province by pro proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Okay, you, they, they, I'd never seen the movie, but I did see the, the uh, ad for it, uh, the preview for the movie, and it scared me to death. And I was like, I'm not ever going to go see a movie like that called The Purge. You ever heard of it? All right, well, don't worry about it, but it's... I mean, that's what this is for the Jews. And listen, it happened a lot to the Jews. So about the time you think you're so good and ahead of the Jews, you don't have a clue what they've faced in life as a people, just for being Jewish. And isn't it interesting how God blessed them above all the peoples on the earth? To this day, and I've said this to you before, if you put up on the wall all of the, the, the inventions, the the uh, refinements that have come to civilization by the Islamic, the Arab world. And by the way, the Arab world, if it was all four of these walls, that's how big the Arab world is, the Jewish nation would be from here to about right there in size. Now get this, this is the truth. Look it up. I challenge you to look this up. All the great inventions, all the things that have been brought for civilization, the peace prizes and everything else, of the entire Arab world, it would, if you listed them all, it would go from the corner to about right there. And if you put the Jews up, they'd go from there all the way around to about right here. More than any other nation. The Jews have had an impact on this world in a positive way. For one reason, God said, you're my people. You're my people. I mean, you got to think about it. There's a reason why the Jews who are surrounded on three sides and then a, and then a sea, why they've never been taken out by the Arabs. Well, there's a reason why. God has provided. God has protected them. And I'm glad to say that I'm in a nation that provides some of that protection to them. I want to be on God's side, not on the world's side. <laughs> Amen. Okay. So verse 15, the couriers hurriedly by, uh, went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the, cit the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. 
Okay, so when the edict goes out all over the postal system throughout all the provinces, they hear it on this day, the 13th day of March next year, you got to exterminate the Jews in your town. And they're like, why? These are our friends. They've done a lot to help us. Why would the king ever want to have them annihilated? That's the impact that God's people had in a foreign land. The people, now here it just says Susa, but I looked it up. And they said all over the land, the entire Persian Empire, the people were not on the same page as Haman and the king. Now, here's the good news. This story's not over. Praise God. Next, next week is going to be incredible, and uh, Brother Scott Walker is going to bring and teach that for us. But I do want to say this to you. Um, all of this came to pass because of the insecurity, the pride, and the work, the scheming of Satan in one man. One man is about to exterminate an entire people group in that region. One man. Satan doesn't need a lot of people to do damage. In the life of the church, one person can sow seeds of discord so much that the church falls into complete confusion and is distracted by the enemy and gets their eyes off of the work that God is doing. And love seems to take a back seat to judgment and criticism. I have seen churches that the operative word for that church is a critical spirit. They don't trust anybody. They measure everybody up and down. There's not love. One person can do that. That's why we must love one another. And when we sense somebody who has a wrong motive in our fellowship, we go to them and we say, brother, sister, that is not of the Lord. What you're doing is not of the Lord. And I'm asking you to stop. And if you're not willing to listen to me, I'm going to bring a witness with me. Somebody who has also heard or seen what you have done. And we will confront you together, lovingly, but we're going to confront you. And if you still won't listen, we're going to take you before the church. We're going to sit with the elders. And we're going to let the elders talk to you, hear what you're saying, what you, and then hear what's been, what you've been doing from the witnesses, and then they'll make a final determination. And they'll go before the whole congregation, if necessary, and say to the church, this, these are the charges brought. We cannot have this in the church. It will destroy the unity and the love that God has done in our, in, our, in, our, in our church and cast them out of the church, that they're not allowed to come back until until they crucify their own flesh and they come back with a spirit of harmony, unity, and agreement. I'm here because I, I need you, you need me, and I want God to lead my life. Never do we have church discipline for the purpose of casting people out. Church discipline is to give people time to get their life in order so they can be restored to the church. We're all about restoration. 
Are we not? That should be a big amen, because guess what? You needed to be restored from your sin life, and God did it. And we have to do that with others. Okay, uh, any questions, any thoughts, comments as we close out our time this evening? It's so good to be together and love one another. Before you leave tonight, practice loving one another. Listen to each other. Pray for each other if necessary. Go get some more food. Have another cup of coffee. Sit at the table and enjoy yourself for a minute, okay? Yes? Yes. No. They'll go through some suffering, and that's what will turn them to God. Because God's going to use 12, He's going to use 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, to go out and preach the gospel to the Jews. And that, ha that happens in the midst of the tribulation. Oh, yeah. That's not salvation, yeah. But they will truly be saved. Jews will truly be saved. Kind of cool. Anybody else? Well, let's close in prayer. Can we do that? Uh, Brent, would you mind closing us in prayer? Amen. God bless each of you. Hey, new building coming. Praise the Lord. The Lord willing. Man, oh man, oh man. Freedom at last. Freedom at last. Thank God Almighty. Freedom at last. <laughs>